And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Friday, August 26th. We're recording this on Thursday. We're just spacing out the episodes a little bit because of the unusual schedule this week. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode, a grab bag of topics. I hinted at the possibility of this on our last episode. We're going to talk about some tough late-season decisions that we have to make uh, with our rosters. In-season management this time of year is a little bit different, but it's also tricky for a multitude of reasons. We'll dig into some of those problems that we're currently experiencing and, and fighting against in our various leagues. We are going to have an installment of Prospect of the Week, which I know people are always excited about. We're going to take a look at some possible help at the first base position where we've had a few injuries recently and a few longer term underperformers that you might finally be ready to move on from. Uh, we've got some mailbag questions to get to. And I think Eno found some interesting stuff about Cade Cavalli upon a little extra digging around since our last episode. So we begin with the tough late season decisions. What is giving you grief as you try and set your lineups each week on on Mondays and Fridays? You know, what what are the most difficult things that you have to decide on as you round out a lineup? The worst is when you have needs in diametrically opposed categories. You know, so in one of my leagues, I could probably get three standing points if I went after K's and I could get three standing points if I went after saves. And that's the that's probably the worst two categories to have needs in because they are opposed to one another. You have a you like especially in something like NFBC, you have a you have a roster slot that you can either go to a closer that's going to get you fewer K's or you can go to a, a, a starter that can get you more K's but no saves. And then on top of that, on the wire, there's nothing worse than trying to go for K's and saves. I think, at least in this part of the season, uh, looking at the streaming uh, options out there, I've been really underwhelmed by streaming options this year. I, in fact, willingly rostered TJ Zoik for this, this week in two NFBC teams because I thought he'd be a two-starter. Then... On Monday, when I'm setting my lineups, he gets sent down, and I get super mad that he got sent down because he's not a two-starter anymore. Then I put in some other guys, Taiwan Walker at New York, you know, uh, I don't think I use Bumgarner at Minnesota, but that sort of stuff where I'm like, oh, all right, I got to use these other guys I wasn't planning on using. And then TJ Zoy comes back up, and I'm actually mad that he comes back up because he's actually going to get a start. And then... He gives up six runs, and I'm mad that I even cared about TJ Zoyk. Yeah. So, anyway, I am thinking about a little bit of a different uh, strategy next year in NFPC in particular, but this is relevant to people with short benches and sort of 15-team depth, is that I want to have more of my bench be starting pitchers because I've realized that especially uh, in the deeper 15-teamers, somebody like Madison Mumgarner, who I did not want to start this week at Minnesota. I hope I didn't. I don't think I did. But uh, but somebody like him is not available when you want to go find a streamer because he's on someone else's team as a team streamer option, as Paul Spore puts it. Um, good old friend Paul Spore at Sleeper in the Bust calls it team streaming because... You don't play that guy every week, but you do leave him on your bench. You don't drop him all the way. He's not a full streamer. And so I would like to ideally come out of the draft with, and I think also a bench reliever is a poor poor proposition. Maybe out of the first week, uh, just to see if he gets anointed closer or not, um, you know, in spring training. Uh, But uh, I think I would like to come out of 
drafts with four out of my six bench slots being starting pitchers. I it's a little bit of something that uh, Derek Cardi does at labor. Mm-hmm. If you've noticed, his entire reserve round uh, situation in NL labor is all pitchers. I think I've lived that that experience you described in a in a situation where the the benefit of going heavy with bats in the roster construction was having an amazing offense. This is in the the NFBC auction league, the big auction league I'm playing in this year, doing great in the offensive categories. And what I failed to do was build the bench around that core roster correctly. I had too much depth all season behind all my bats. So I was never, I was never losing playing time with my hitters, but I think I was wasting production on the bench because I had four hitters and three pitchers. And earlier in the season, when I was still trying to find saves, I was burning spots, trying to get relievers that were going to get saves. So I probably only had one to two extra pitchers. And then one of my first two pitchers, Walker Bueller suffered a season ending injury. And I, I didn't have enough starting pitching to begin with. And then because so my depth was missing for a while to find out what the information was. Yeah. I, I think I made a pretty quick cut on him, but Okay. But what I, what I ran into was that the, the in-season problem you're describing, the quality of the pitchers that are available most weeks for streaming purposes are pretty low. There have been pitchers that have emerged on the wire. But then you don't want to drop them. Sometimes Then they end up on your team, and you don't want to drop them after they have a good two weeks. That, that two yeah. Week, you know? So I, I just, I've, never, I've never fully rallied from that part of the roster construction flaw, not taking enough depth pitchers up top and having to chase on the bottom of the roster with really mediocre arms. It's reflected in my ratios. My ratios are terrible in that league. I have plenty of points I could make up if I could find good ratios. I'm having a hard time finding good ratios. Yeah, bulk good ratios. Get get bulk good ratios for the last month. (laughs) Get great ERA and whip and close the gap on the teams that have like a 380 ERA. Not like a middle reliever. That's not going to give you enough bulk. Not enough. So I might sit down today and and figure out what exactly I would have to do to vault myself up a handful of points in the standings in both ratios categories just to see. And I'll know how unrealistic it is. Maybe you could bench a bulk mediocre pitcher for a middle reliever and thereby take away the bulk bad and put in some small good. (laughs) That was suggested by a friend of ours, I think, back in June, July. He he pointed out, he said, you know, you could really start throwing the, the bulk relievers who, if you look at the schedule and see the guys that didn't pitch over the weekend, you might get them twice in a week. You might be able to stream the bulk relievers for two appearances. One thing I've noticed about bulk relievers, though, they're not staying bulk relievers. Right. Keegan Aiken is a one one pit one inning guy now, and uh, Will Crow is a one inning guy now. So, who are the bulk relievers? It's a short list. I've mentioned Ronaldo Lopez a million times. Uh, it- Colin McHugh. <laughs> Ronaldo Lopez. There aren't enough guys there. I think it's a it's something you could do, but the process for finding those players is very granular and time consuming. And you're still not optimizing the roster. You're still likely short in terms of innings in a typical week compared to what a starter can give you. You're capping yourself. Those bulk relievers can't be two start pitchers, so they'll never get you ten innings in a week. So that's out. And they rarely become full time starters because. They usually used to be starters, and they're now bulk relievers because it's been proven they can't handle getting the lineup a third time. So all this is to say, like the, the corrective action here, if you feel like you've been chasing pitching all season or you're having tough pitching decisions to make, you need to find a way to have more flexibility on your roster. You need more multi-position eligible players because doing that means you don't have to have a backup corner and a backup middle and a backup outfielder and maybe even a backup catcher depending on who your catchers are. I think there's some roster construction things you can can push toward that change the way you build that bench. I think if you cheap out on catchers, you're more likely to roster a third one. I think if you pay up for catchers, you don't need to bother with a third one because the waiver wire is fine. Like if you're short for part of a week because one of your catchers got hurt midweek, the zero compared to the waiver wire catcher in a two catcher 15 team league, that's not going to hurt you that badly. 
and you were getting a massive advantage in that spot. Might even be better along. than some of the catchers out there <laughs> taking a zero. But I do agree with you. Like you know, the multi eligible is actually not just a thing for draft and hold because um, you know it, you do, especially in weekly leagues, you do want to have backups on your roster because it's awful if you get an injury on Tuesday at a position you don't have a backup and you take five days of zero at a position that other than catcher that's really bad uh that's a lot of days you fall behind other teams and that's why it's nice to have the friday uh change but if you don't have a backup on your roster you don't have someone you can you can put in midweek um that's pretty specific to nfbc but i do think the deeper your league is the better it is to have multi-positional guys i know in my mono league in al labor uh, it's been really useful to have like hunter dozier who's a first baseman, third baseman outfielder. I've, I've moved him around a fair amount and he's, he's, he, he plugged in at third when Mankata went out and, you know, he's been very useful to me, uh, on that first place team, even though Ian Khan, it's just, it's just hanging around a little bit too much. Making me nervous. Don't like that. He's in your head. He's been in your head all week. A little bit less important in like a 10 team league, right? Like, because, if you have an injury, especially if it's 10-team daily, if you have an injury, you can go get go get somebody. Yeah, for sure. So these late-season decisions when you're stuck between, you're still chasing saves and bulk, those can be particularly difficult because you have to choose. Is it 6-3? Is it 7-2 in terms of starters versus relievers? And how much will that cost you if, if the schedule's not giving you enough two-start pitchers that week? that might be the thing that leads you to go with the extra starter. If you have a lot of two-start pitchers, maybe that affords you the flexibility, the extra reliever. But we end up with these decisions that are not easy. And I think they're what make the game fun because there's not always a clear and obvious path forward. Sometimes you just have to choose similar or equal, near equal sorts of of options. Um, I think the funny example of of late season management that is, is more of like a add drop sort of thing is Phil Dussault tweeted about this. He dropped Josh Hader in the main event, a 15-team league, the NFC main event. Uh, and this was actually in Ian's league. So I think Ian and Rob Mershak were the duo that picked Hader up on waivers over the weekend, which is very layered. But I think the the thing about choosing to drop a player like Hader, it has everything to do, I think, with where you're sitting in the standings and your, what your needs are. So I haven't seen Phil's particular standings in this league but I, I could imagine being in a situation where maybe I'm just locked into my spot in saves or I, I can only gain a point or two in saves and I can't really lose much there so I'm going to push another starter in my lineup anyway I'm going to go from seven and two to eight and one because wins and K's have the greater potential growth for standings points I think that that almost can can overwrite who you think the player is going to be for the better part of what's left of the season. We're talking about a month plus now. So with Hayter specifically, he gets this temporary demotion. He's probably going to get his job back before the end of the season. I would say it's more likely than not he keeps it. Even if you believe that, if it takes a week or two for that to happen, he's not useful to you for a week or two. He's not getting you the one thing that he was supposed to be getting you the whole time. And someone else in that spot makes you better. So I, I can rationalize a decision like that, even though it's really hard to bring yourself to the point where you drop a player that was either a really early pick or even someone that you still believe in. Yeah. The thing is, though, you have to stay afloat sometimes. You know, maybe he's just locked into saves, but for me, uh, in my main, I'm actually second. Woohoo! I jumped up to second. It's really tight between me and third and fourth, and mostly third and fourth so i could anywhere i could end up anywhere from second to fourth i think first has got this wrapped up i want to you know i want to place in my first main ever and so i'm you know i'm all aboard uh i'm kind of i think i'm locked into k's actually so you know i'm i it's 34 to the next one and it's it's uh 22 to the one behind me right it's fairly locked in right yeah but wins are awful oh my god if i had four more wins i would have four more standing points and i would actually be leapfrogging some guys who i'm battling so it'd be even more than that and and i am but i'm only one save up on one of the guys behind me in saves 
Like, what do you do there? <laughs> because I, I could easily be like, okay, screw the two starters, right? I, I don't need the Ks. I'm not going anywhere in the Ks. But I can't because of wins. <laughs> oh, man. So this week in that line, in that league, I did pick up TJ Zoic. <laughs> and I had a choice of Madison Bumgarner at the White Sox or uh, or Taiwan Walker at the Yankees because TJ Zoic didn't come through. And... Uh, I chose uh, Taiwan Walker. I think that was probably the right choice. But uh, that's the sort of decision-making process I have to go through. And I have Bednar on my bench. When Bednar comes back, uh, I will have the choice between Bednar, Ian Kennedy, and one of the starters every week. And it's just going to be a feeling out process, really. I think Bednar's probably the, over Ian Kennedy, probably the easy call for that spot once he's healthy. So, I mean, so it's really about Ian Kennedy versus my worst starter. Yeah. That's what it comes down to sometimes, and, and just <laughs> being being right. I mean, the, the TJ Zoic oh. situation is just brutal, though. I, I, I that's not a not <laughs> a guy you want to have in the mix at all this time of year. Desperation, man, this is what happens. But uh, I also I don't want to give short strength to the batting side. Um, you know, it's interesting that you know. So, for example, in this league, um, home runs. If I, I need home runs, if I get three more home runs, I. I I beat someone. Uh, I get the, beat the guy who's in third right now. Uh, I take a point away from him and I gain a point. Really important. Three home runs. Need that. The guy behind me is one home run. Guy behind me is three home runs. So it's like we're all trying to get home runs. I don't need stolen bases. Uh, I have 116. The guy behind me is 109. The first guy is 132. Right. I don't need stolen bases. So you go over to your set lineup page and say, okay, uh, I don't need I don't need stolen bases. I need home runs. And you've got you know, Bryson Stott uh, versus Mike Yastrzemski versus J.J. Blade. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I. and this was early in the week. That might be easier for the late in the week. But early in the week, the choice was Bryson Stott at home against Cincinnati for four or J.J. Blade at Oakland for three. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, well, play, Blade is like a little bit more likely to hit homers, but not in Oakland. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, I had Austin Hayes at home for three against the White Sox. I do uh, one last time want to talk about like the, the Razzball tools are super useful because they not only project a value where you can say, okay, the overall value of Stott at home for four against Cincinnati is much better than it is for Blade and Hayes and Yastrzemski for, for two at Detroit. But you can also look at component things and see how many homers you might be giving up in terms of projections, right? Mm-hmm. So it projected Bryson Stott for like 0.5 homers or 0.2 homers and Blade for like 0.3. And I'm like, well... You know, I'm. I'd rather take the overall goodness of Bryson Stott because you know there are other parts of the standings where I don't want to fall back. Like in terms of, uh, you know, runs and RBI and playing time. Like RBI, I need three RBI to take a point away from somebody I'm battling with. You know, so the all these things are interconnected, and it's not always like oh, just put in Blade uh, and go all for the homers because you know you could get somewhere in homers. Well. You know, if I get that point in homers and lose a point in RBI, then I'm where I started. Hi, I'm playing that game in a few different places right now. But for me, it's been more on the pitching side than on the hitting side because my teams, when I had control, I was overdrafting hitting. And I don't I don't like the way the end game has played out for that as much as you'd like. I I would like to have a little more balance or possibly try the other direction for the reasons that we mentioned where I don't. I feel like the bats you can find in season are a little better. They're a little more predictable. They're they're a little bit a little bit less terrible seemingly than some of the late season streaming pitchers. We have some tools like barrel rate where like early in the season you can see someone who's just barreling really well and like two or three weeks in you can be like, Well, we're almost there for barrel rate. I'm gonna take a chance on this guy and, and find somebody and you know, I feel like you can use stuff and, and pitching plus to kind of do that with pitchers. Uh, but they're also very schedule dependent uh, in a way that I think barrel rate is not as schedule dependent. You know, it's just like that guy's barreling it, you know. 
Um, whereas a guy who has like 100 pitching plus, that's like average. That's okay. But against a bunch of bad opponents, he'll look better than that. And against a good opponents, he'll look worse than that. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to say is I don't think that I'm being convinced that I want to take like two starting pitchers in the first two rounds or that I want to take five starting pitchers in those first seven rounds or something. I'm not being convinced that I need to uh, alter my strategy drastically in that regard. But one more pitcher in the first five rounds, maybe, you know, like try to come out with three in the first six or something or four in the first seven where it's just just one more piece of uh, bite at the apple with early starting pitchers as opposed to late. Because um, there's usually also a, a fair amount of late bat sleepers that I like. And, I, you know, it's true for pitchers, too, but I don't know. It, it, there's been my pitching stabs are still not as good as I'd like them to be. Yeah, living that in a league right now that is very important to me, and it is frustrating to say the least. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on to some other topics. How about Jared Walsh? I think there's a simple question to be asked with him. What went wrong and could we have seen this coming? Because at a glance, I can honestly say no. I did not see this coming. I had no real reservations about Jared Walsh as kind of a pick 100 to 130 range sort of a guy. I think he was kind of a fringy top 10 first baseman by ADP and by most people's projections and, and expectations. But K rate went up this year. The walk rate came down. The power has been sliced almost in, in half in terms of the home run output. 29 homers a year ago. He's at 15 right now through 118 games. And his season might be coming to a close due to an injury as well because he has been diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome. So maybe this is all just injury. Maybe the injury is the explanation we were looking for. But were there any warning signs in the profile that pointed to a massive drop otherwise? You know, I suppose he did not have uh, great plate discipline stats. He, he's been sort of average-ish when it comes to chase rate. Um, and that seems to be exacerbated in his 30% strikeout rate, which, of course, could also be injury. Um, but uh, if he's making poor swing decisions, uh, the fact that his bail rate is it's down, but it's comparable. His max EV is down, but it's comparable. Um suggest that maybe if it's if there's anything other than injury it's uh, poor plate discipline um that has has caused a little bit of this erosion um i i don't know uh also i guess there's a question of how much track record do we really have you know we had we had one season uh, of of good work and then 108 plate appearances of a good barrel rate from 2020 and uh, between those, it felt like we could extrapolate that he'd be good. The barrel rate was good. Um, but I wonder if the chase rate was a bit of a warning sign. And then the last thing is he never had good splits. You know, he wasn't really playing against lefties because he had poor splits against lefties. Now, you want way more sample to believe in a, in a thing like that. But when you see a team sitting a guy against lefties, when he was basically healthy all season in 2021 and only got 585 plate appearances. I think that's a little bit of a yellow uh, sign, you know, a yellow light. So you get the yellow light on the usage and a yellow light on the chase rate. But there's nothing here that when I look back, I say that's a red light. Yeah, that's how I've been looking at it with Walsh so far this year. And again, maybe the injury is, is a big part of the explanation. But I do think the the first base 
the first base breakouts, these these unexpected, these kind of non-prospects that emerge to take over either a large side platoon role or possibly an everyday role. I think Luke Voigt probably fits into this mold. Injuries really slowed him down. Rowdy to last. Rowdy is kind of like that. Uh, Jesus Aguilar a few years ago. It's not just all lefties or anything. It's some lefties. It's some righties. They seem to be really fast peak players. There's something about this player type, the athleticism, the swing decisions, some combination of those things or the tools as a whole that that lead these players to reach a quick peak where they're middle third of the order run producers for about two to three seasons at the high end most times. And then it's a reasonably quick drop. And I I think there's a you know, you're, you're right. Age was another yellow light. That's what you're basically saying, right? I guess. Yeah. It's, a late it's, it's the arrival. Yeah. It's arriving at 25. Like that's that's usually not going to hold also for very long. Not playing every day till 28. And I think, you know, I think this is how I think of it. And I might be wrong. I've, I've had some arguments with people where, you know, they've made some compelling counter arguments. But so there's a curve and I'm doing this on YouTube, but there's a curve of like, you know, an aging curve, you know, of like, this is how good you are. <laughs> I was just watching that the other night. <laughs> so there's a curve of with a peak of of uh, how good you're you're uh, you're you're you are. Right. And let's say there's a line here that's like starting every day in baseball. And let's say uh, you you start playing at, at 19 in, in baseball and you start playing every day at 19. That means you have all this aging left and you're playing. And this is like the level of where playing, everyday playing is, right? But let's say you start playing at 29. I think you're, this is your peak. You're at your peak basically. and every, And your peak is just barely good enough to play every day. Isn't that what you're kind of saying? Your peak is just barely good enough to play every day. Think of that with like Brandon Drury or, you know, any of these guys. Yeah, late your peak, late 20s. You're, 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 you are peaking. You're only going to decline if, if you yeah. arrive in your late 20s. If you come in at least in your mid-20s, you might hit the peak or be at the peak for a little while and then eventually start tapering right. off. But like a 28, 29-year-old pop-up, um, you're basically, you're like by definition, you're post-peak. But let's say you're peaking you're personally peaking and you're personally peaking. You're only going to get worse after that. And your personal peak was just good enough to be a major league regular. <laughs> and I, I, and I, I'm not trying to be rude to players. Like that's obviously a little bit rude. Uh, but it, it's, it's also a fact of life that if you do pick up some of these guys that have late peaks, um, you, you'll see like Whit Merrifield was a bit of a, a, a late call up that, signed a uh signed a deal because he was like i think he saw either he or his agent saw the writing on the wall like you know not necessarily someone who's going to play till he's 38 you know you know who plays till he's 38 albert pujols who's like up at 20 you know what i mean that's who plays till 38 uh you know these other guys are going to play till they're 31 32 so that's something to think about i think when you think about drafting brand Drury like next year like who who are the next jared walsh's i think rowdy let me see how old he is. Yeah, who are who are the next Jared Walsh's? Rowdy is twenty seven. However, uh, this is the first year he will even put up one win above replacement. So, as much as you like Rowdy, you know now's the time to trade him in Dynasty. I think. Uh, who are some other? How would we find breakouts uh, that are old? Let's just do. Uh, 26 to 28 year old war leaderboard uh, and just see if we can pick any out. Let's do 27 to 29. I think Brandjury is one for sure. Uh, who's new on this? Is, Tom, is Tommy Edmund? No, he's been playing for a while. Uh, Adol- Adolis Garcia. Ah. Yeah, Dolis Garcia. Is, it's one little sort of yellow light. I mean, there's there's a red light for Dolis Garcia, which is play discipline. The yellow light is uh, late late breakout. Yeah, I missed out on him this year for pretty much all of these reasons. Taylor War, dude. Oh, no. One on his own team. Another angel. Uh, Santiago Espinal. Already showing some warts anyway. We're at the point in the season, though, where a lot of the players that we're, we're talking about, they're emerging right now. Because if you were looking for first base help, it's mostly older players getting the chance for the first time. A handful of exceptions. I think that's actually another yellow light for him is his position. Because how do major league teams treat first base? 
Highly we're replaceable. Find yeah, we're going to find one. So, you know, I think that's that's all useful. But maybe um, also useful to, for people listening and be uh, to talk about some possible replacements. I don't know. Um, we talked a little bit about Joey Manassas on the fantasy. What's that one called with uh, Al Melky or the fantasy? The fantasy baseball the, podcast. Baseball, the athletic fantasy, fantasy baseball podcast. Please remember that one. Eno, Tough one. You idiot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but we talked about Joey Manessis, and I was saying that he gives me um, he gives me uh, Schwindel vibes, which uh, sounds like super negative. But remember, Schwindel had a pretty good season last year, so I think Manessis is one of the better in season pickups. But what when you're talking about next year, uh, he's exactly who we're talking about with uh, with walsh and even worse he's 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 got the same worse as schwindel for next year he's gonna be a 31 year old uh that has no plate discipline makes a lot of contact and uh may just regress just as bad as schwindel so uh it's a it's a backhanded compliment but it's still a compliment because i think he could have a decent end of season uh and you know you may maybe manessis is uh owned in something like uh 10 of yahoo leagues or something so that's if you're in a deeper league. He's, he's a pretty good option for deeper leagues. I hope this is an easy concept to understand, but I think when you're talking about second half pickups, you don't have to like the player in the long run. You don't have to believe that it's a profile that sticks mm-hmm. for next season because you're only playing is for this one. Is he going to play for the Nationals? Will they keep playing him? <laughs> sure. Who, who's there to replace him? Teams that are, are playing out the string, especially when you're talking about the positions that are not that important to the organization in the long run, they'll leave the door open for Joey Manessis for the rest of the season. So I have no problem picking him up. If I need corner help, even in a 12-team league, if the playing time is there, we think the power's good enough, the lineup position's better than it should be because the team's a mess. That's fine for right now. But if you're telling me at pick 250 for 2023, do you want Joey Meneses as your corner? No, I don't. I didn't want Frank Schwindel. I didn't. <laughs> I will lose to people who draft these players if these players are good for a full season. So I guess occasionally you do miss out on a Maybe an Aguilar or a Voigt or some players like that can come through and, and stick around longer than expected. But this is generally the type of player that I'm very skeptical of. And I think it's for good reason. And, and you could just look at usage to, to gain some uh, eye into what's going on here. Because I, I, I kind of think like a Lamont Wade Jr., who's available in as many leagues, I think he's probably a better long-term asset. Right now, he's hitting everything straight up in the air. And maybe he has uh, some adjustments to make, but the walk rate, the strikeout rate, the power are good. It's all mostly BABIP. He's got a 050 BABIP in the last two weeks. However, uh, even if Lamont Wade Jr. is a little bit better of a of a of a real life asset, he's had 35 plate appearances in the last two weeks. Manessis has had 52. So if you pick up Wade, you're just leaving a lot of plate appearances out on the table. And and I I like Isaac Paredes. 35 plate appearances. I like Josh Naylor better than all of these guys. And if you're in a daily league and you're looking to replace, uh, you know, Jared Walsh's production, Josh Naylor is a great pickup because you can maybe pair him with somebody else and 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 get that production. He's he's actually better than Walsh has been this year, you know. But 38 plate appearances. So really, you know, in order to replace Walsh, you got to have Josh Naylor and Isaac Paredes, or Joey Manessis. Yeah, I I think Naylor would be kind of your best Jared Walsh replacement of this group. A little bit younger than a lot of the players we're talking about, too. So more optimism there. Um, I think El Haris Montero is kind of interesting. He's one of the players the Rockies got back in the Nolan Arenado deal with the Cardinals. And, you know, the home road problems for the Rockies are, are certainly going to be there for a young player. I know the strikeout rate's a little high right now, but we're talking about his first 100 career big league plate appearances and He's controlled the strike zone well enough in the upper levels of the minor leagues where I don't I don't have this expectation that El Haris Montero has bad swing decisions like cooked in. It might just be sort of pressing to start a career. And also when you're hitting 255 and you have five, four homers, it's not obvious yet to you that you're you know that it's not working. <laughs> yeah, you get a couple of good results and you, know, you keep using the same approach, but I actually think that's a good profile if you're looking for Someone that could have been maybe added in a 
keeper league or could be easily traded for in a deep format right now. I actually think Montero is a good target. Yeah, and you know, I was looking week to week at the schedule, and I was like, oh man, the the Rockies are on a ten day schedule, you know, a ten day uh, away game, uh, away uh, part of their schedule. This might not be the best time to pick him up. However, after this Mets thing this weekend, I think uh, he goes to Cincinnati and Atlanta, which are not terrible places to be on the road. So if you're looking at a Sunday pickup, uh, Montero for Monday after the Mets series uh, should be super cheap. Uh, And if you're kind of doing this thing where you're threading pickups, I, I say put Montero on it, you know? Like, maybe he's not your number one guy. You know, if Naylor's out there, you start with Naylor. But you can put, by putting Montero on for a buck at the bottom, you can uh, you can make things easier for you if you don't get Naylor. You know, <laughs> like, at least put him, put him in the waiver claim bucket. Part of the reason we're looking for first base help, aside from someone like Walsh, you know, Vinny Pasquantino's hurt right now. Brandon Belt can't seem to shake the knee injury. Unfortunately, this might be nearing the end of the road for for belt which is is really kind of a sad way to see him go out i saw that from uh from andrew baggerly and i don't know if i fully agree i can't it's uh it's tough when you look at the underlying numbers and they're exactly the same as they've been for years uh you know he has a 12 percent walk rate for his career he has a 12 percent walk rate this year he's a 24 percent strikeout rate for his career is 27 percent this year 11 percent swing strike 13 percent uh, you know, uh, he has the 13% barrel rate this year. That would be the third best of his career. Uh, you know, all these things seem to suggest that he's okay. Um, and then he has a slightly bad BABIP and he's been running like a 50% fly ball rate for a couple for a couple uh, years now. And, uh, he's just not turning those barrels into homers as much this year. Uh, I don't know if I was another team that was looking for like an old DH, uh, next year on a one-year deal, I might give Brandon Belt another chance, try. This is the part of the calendar when I start saying Oakland um, to yeah. the, the, the where yeah. where could this player go next year and find lots of playing time and and have uh, just a you know clear clear path to maybe bouncing back if health uh, works in their favor. I hope for Belt's sake it does. I mean, I, it would be nice to see him continue to play because he he seems to have core skills that are definitely good enough to produce at least on the big side of a platoon i I, i've been um i've been wondering if i should change my tune a little bit on the a's uh this year because they've undergone the process uh that they need to go through of sort of sorting through the veterans and trying out the young guys and seeing who which pop-up guys are real and you know i no longer think that when i look out on the team um, none of these players will be on the next good A's team. <laughs> uh, because Nick Allen sometimes shows a little power. He's a little bit interesting. Shea Langoliers might be legit. He cut his strikeout rate again this year. Um, and Seth Brown is is not necessarily a building block piece. Um, and he's a 30, so he might not be around either. But uh, he is the type of guy that the, uh, that the A's find, you know? Um, so I... I I'm softening my stance a little bit that this is uh, out of the norm for the A's. This looks a little bit like 2015 when they were just trying to find find guys and give guys opportunity on the field. So if that is the case and they start to invest a little bit more going forward, then Brandon Belt at DH next year is a total possibility. I think they've got maybe three players for the next good A's team in the lineup right now between Murphy Langoliers and Loriano, and it seems unlikely that Murphy and Langoliers would both be there. But and Loriano also seems like somebody they would. Yeah, I don't. They would trade. This, this is still a pretty pretty rough teardown. I also think the Sean Murphy trade could bring them back quite a bit more than what they got back for Matt Chapman, though. So maybe that uh, maybe that helps kind of fix the situation too. And they've they've got a lot riding on gunner hoagland getting healthy and so far the late stages of his rehab from tommy john surgery are really encouraging so if he comes back and flies up prospect lists and quickly becomes one of the best pitching prospects in the game that would certainly help but they've got a pop-up in jordan diaz is this is this a natural segue we're building towards i think it is oh gosh how do we we're so good at how'd we do that yeah jordan did i mention jordan diaz as a previous prospect of the week 
It's possible. He has, uh, I, I think we've, we've talked about it before, but a, an intriguing combination of emerging power and good strikeout rate. I think the, the, the question is the power is just right on the cusp. When you have like a 190 ISO in the minors, I'm just like, I don't know, dude. <laughs> Especially when it comes to the 52% ground ball rate. It's like, uh, you know, maybe he's just a, a, a good spray hitter, but uh, I would know a lot more if I had his barrel rates. I believe I did not use Jordan Diaz previously as prospect of the week. So I'm going to go ahead and make him my prospect of the week selection. I'm going to do it because he was one of the players that I, when I was digging through the A's system a few weeks ago, I was was impressed. I was like, this is, this is legit. This is a guy that can actually help them long-term. And Zach Geloff, I think is probably the, the better corner infield prospect. They're going to probably move those guys around to make the pieces fit. So I don't know how, defensively it all works eventually that's a problem that the a's can solve they got they got time to figure that no one, out. one really blocking them <laughs> no one really blocking anybody I and mean, unless you're a catcher there's a pretty right. clear path to the <laughs> roster wherever you really need it to be yeah but a really nice season at double a nice to see him getting a, a late season look at triple a and jordan diaz probably a player that we're going to see in the big leagues at some point by the middle of 2023 i don't think that's that's unrealistic based on what he's been able to accomplish yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about him versus uh, Mark Vientos, you know, uh, a guy that we've talked a little bit about uh, that's on the A's uh, on the Mets, uh, uh, you know, AAA roster right now. Vientos is a guy who walks more, strikes out more, and has more power. However, you know, he's striking out twenty eight to thirty percent of the time, and even if he translated that exactly to the big leagues. Um, he has less defensive value than Diaz, makes less contact. And in my opinion, like hard pressed to outperform Diaz, especially when you're thinking about war versus, uh, you know, just on the, uh, just at the plate. Um, but I think that's also meaningful because, uh, you know, war is what will give Diaz more playing time than Vientos. So, um, I know that some people have Vientos high on their list, but, and I know I have a, a slight bias away from guys that strike out 30% of the time. And I, I saw Jarrett Seidler say some stuff on, fan, on on Twitter today about how the guys who strike out 30% in the major leagues did not strike out 30% in the minor leagues. They struck out, you know, 24% in the minor leagues. <laughs> and the guys who strike out 30% in the minor leagues don't usually make it to the big leagues. No, they're up and down guys if they get there at all. It's a very tough skills flaw to overcome. Uh, looking at the hard hit numbers for Jordan Diaz, 26.6% hard hit rate. That's based on the Sports Info Solutions number. I know the Rotowire player pages have that. I don't know if there's any other places where you can easily access that. So 26.6%. What's the context on that? Um, those are graded by hand. So there's hard, medium, and soft. But also, like, is that a good number? So it skews a little low, but the reason I wouldn't panic is, one, it is scored by video or by scout. So it's it's manual. It's not just you know, pure, like, a stat cast sort of thing. Uh-huh. Also, age to level. Diaz is young, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's 21, and he's now at AAA. So when you're talking about a player that young, it's less of a problem. He turned 22 a couple weeks ago, but he's been 21 for most of this season. Um, His seasonal age is 21. Yeah, Vientos, just by comparison, Mark Vientos, 29.1% hard hit rate. So kind of similar. So a tiny bit better, but not that much better. No, no. It's mostly just that he's hitting his balls in the air, whereas Diaz is hitting his balls on the ground. Just for some other context, some some guys who are really good in terms of hard hit rate based on how this is measured. Nolan Jones, 43.8% at AAA. I continue to like him. If his demotion makes him available in your dynasty league, like I would try and buy him. Corbin Carroll, 39.2% hard hit rate. Kelnick, sexy. Kelnick, 383 Yeah, yeah. No, Kelnick. Yeah, I don't know. That's swing and miss, man. Nolan Gorman pre, uh, pre-promotion at 38.1. Joe Adele, wow. 38% for Joe Adele. And this is this like per ball and play, not per play appearance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Spotted something. Yeah. So those, those are the higher end guys, but you move through the list, you'll see plenty of guys that are in their you know, late teens, early 20s that are lower in the range, but I still wouldn't consider that to be alarming. I got a name for you to make a look up. How about Addison Barger? He is a 22-year-old infielder in Toronto in AA. It's got him at 30% for a hard hit rate. 
Okay, so better than uh, than Diaz and Vientos, but worse than the uh, very upper echelon. I, I will buy it. Addison Barger, I think, has a really uh, fascinating backstory. As uh, I'll take him as my prospect of the week. He uh, only has one write-up uh, on Fangraphs from 2019 from Aaron Longenhang and Kylie McDaniel, where it just says 40 hit tool, 40 power bench bat. Then after that, he got popped for PEDs and missed some time in 2019. Then he had a fully missed season in 2020 and nobody thought of him again. When he came back in 2021, uh, he hit for power, but he showed off that 40 hit tool with a 33% strikeout rate. Uh, People mostly still just wrote him off. Now at 22, years old uh he has uh, blown through uh, high a and double a with a, the same wrc plus 150 he's showing off his power um he's cut his strikeout rate uh he's really improved his uh, contact rate uh, his his uh, contact quality against right handers he's a left hander uh that can play third he even in the write up from longenhagen has a plus arm so i think he's going to stay at third the strikeout rate is a little concerning, but I think he has enough power to make it work at 30%. And then I got uh, a couple more pieces of interesting information that the swing decisions are still a little bit poor, but he crushes right hand, harder, right-handers and his batted ball velocities are basically elite for his level, uh, you know, according to more TrackMan-esque numbers. Um, and uh, that he was asked for uh, at the trade deadline, um, and the team decided not uh, to trade him. He's 40-man eligible. He needs to be put on the 40-man next year. So he's on the fast track uh, to going to the Toronto, and it seems like the organization values him. So here's a guy that's coming out of nowhere that you know steals a few bags, hits homers, may not have the best batting average, uh, but even Steamer projects a 244 batting average and above average bat at the major leagues right now. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, Steamer's always going to be pessimistic, I think. Yeah, I, I think with Barger, too, I mean, being in an organization that looks like it's lined up for some long term success, there's probably some big side platoon risk, but at least it's big side platoon risk. At least it's big side. Yeah. Yeah. Because if Toronto's really good, there may not, they want, they may not want to call him up. Um, to uh, play every day you know they'll have maybe like an espinal or somebody that can uh that can platoon with them uh but i think there's still you know even with espinal's uh you know uh, advancement this year and added power you've seen that they're playing him less and that he's become a little bit more of a small side platoon guy over the course of the season um so there is question of Sort of how what the long term plan is with Espinal, Merrifield, and Chapman. Who's going to stick around? Who's going to go? And where might Barger step in? Yeah, but a nice name, not someone that was on my radar at all when the season began. So good poll for your prospect of the week selection. We did talk about Cade Cavalli briefly on the last episode, and you were able to find some more uh, stuff numbers on Cavalli. So I'm curious to know what uh, what you dug up. Yeah, I remembered that we actually ran... Uh, I forgot that he was at the Futures game last year. We had stuff numbers from the Futures game last year. It's a little bit small on YouTube, but if you look closely, uh, Kate Cavalli had the fourth best uh, stuff plus on his four-seam fastball in that game. <laughs> um, and uh, the only note of caution there is that Reed Detmers had a slightly better forcing fastball stuff plus in that game they are airing it out in a short one inning stint uh this is basically almost max stuff plus uh you know for them uh reed detmers now has a below average major league forcing fastball stuff plus so it's still possible kate cavalli does not have a great uh four seam he also does not show up as impressive in any other uh pitch group except for cutter he had the best cutter in the game uh, so it's an interesting collection of pitches where it's possible to change up his below average. Um, and is he going to be a four-seam cutter slider guy? Is he going to be able to pull that off? 
So I think there's a fair amount of risk here, especially given his organization. But I did want to uh, put him into context with some guys like Detmers and uh, who did he have a better? He had a better cutter than Nicola Dolo. You see, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm trying to... This is a, this is a weird, weird quality, artistic quality. segment of this show that I didn't think quality we'd ever get TV. to. Uh, his slider rated as about average, about as much as good as Reed Detmer's slider. Um, but that's interesting because that's also Reed Detmer's new old slider, if that makes sense. That was Reed Detmer's new slider that he has now turfed and gone back to his old slider since. So I think it almost seems a little more optimistic than we were uh, based on concerns about command specifically with Cade Cavalli. The good news is if you're thinking about picking him up in a redraft league, you get to watch the debut first. You get to see what it looks like. So that helps as well. Um, I I think the, the glaring need for quality innings there gives him a, a nice job security floor. I think the innings from last season give him plenty of buffer to make it through September. So if he's pitching well, I don't think we're looking at a very early shutdown. I wouldn't treat Cavalli as much more than a, a matchup dependent starter yeah. from the jump. That's what I was going to say. But in September, those guys can can pop, right? You get a few lineups that are playing for the future and, and maybe they've got to the point where a handful of stars are missing when because of injuries. When's he supposed to pitch? He pitches Friday. So I'm looking. I'm gonna look at the schedule. Right. So after that's Reds at home. Well, that's a, that's decent. If you first uh, come you first want to serve, be I, I would use that. I, Two, it, three, four, if I'm five. chasing starts in a first come first A's serve at home. Use that next Thursday. I like that one. Two, three, four, five at Cardinals. Nope. Borderline. No. That's a no. One, two, three, four, five at Phillies. Nope. Yeah, that's an easy. Uh, that's a one, that's a two, two star three, week, four, isn't it? Five. St. Louis and, and Philly. Then, Oh, so that might just be an avoid. That's a tough two starter. That's either an avoid or your ratios are are to- banged are up anyway. anyway. So <laughs> we- I get back on the horse for Marlins at National September eighteenth. So uh, could be a good early pickup uh, for that A start, uh, and then you're going to have to make a decision for the double tap if he if he stays up, um, and then I get back on the horse. I, I bet you. Uh, I pick him up after he's been dropped after the two-star week for the Marlins start. <laughs> it's nice to know your your own tendencies and, and have, a, have a plan. <laughs> Seems like you got a pretty clear plan. I also have no money left in my, my league. So also a if he's going to be a top pickup, I'm not going to get him. I did blow some money on Brett Beatty, uh, you know, just as an update. Uh, I lost Joey Votto in the main. And uh, I did uh, use my final mini hammer on Brett Beatty. I like that he's making contact. He does not chase. That's good. The max EV is good. Um, I don't know that he's playing his way into everyday role. So we're going to probably have to go back out there with my pennies and see who I can pick up. (laughs) It's the most wonderful time of the year trying to... Juan Yepes, please come back up. (laughs) Sneak players back onto your roster for a couple of bucks as uh, you get through the last couple rounds of fab. Uh, A couple mailbag questions to get to. This one comes from Isaac. How can I untrain myself to avoid older pitchers in the rates and barrels parlance? I never end up with solid veteran oatmeal pitchers because I have this notion that because they're older, they're more likely to miss time due to injury. I lean toward younger hitters as well, but I always sprinkle in a good share of Odie bats. Are there any benchmarks that either of you know of around velocity or command or even injuries that I can use to help me feel better about taking older arm so what would you tell isaac anybody else out there that tends to avoid pitchers i'm assuming probably on the wrong side of 30 but especially the the 35 and over pitchers which has actually been a pretty decent group if you look at expectations like it seems like the market correction on those players leaves a good bit of room for profit i did find uh last year late last year that the ratio of older pitchers which was uh over uh, over 33 to young pitchers under 24 was better than ever it was um, and in, in favor of the older ones. And I think that what's happening is um, that uh, teams are just being cautious, breaking guys in as younger pitchers. And so you're seeing all these strategies like, hey, we're going to start him out in the pen or uh, he's going to be a four-inning guy, right? Like these three four-inning guys. And think about the Rays, how they break starting pitchers in. So 
Um, I think people are kind of slow walking it at the beginning. And then near the end, they don't care as much about innings anymore, right? They're not like, ooh, we need to baby his arm, right? And nobody cares. Wainwright doesn't have a have a, a innings limit, you know? So uh, they just, uh, they throw those guys out there. And then also you've like sort of proven your abilities at a certain point when you're older. And the last thing I want to say is that stuff is not, people think velo is stuff, but stuff is more than velo. Um, and if you looked at stuff and pitching plus for Adam Wainwright, it was like fairly bullish on him coming into the season. So I would just say, if you've got an older starting pitcher like a Corey Kluber or Adam Wainwright that looks good still by, by stuff plus, I think a lot of times it's pitching plus and it's they still have command on a lot of pitches. That's sort of where I'd look. But uh, I would just say an older starting pitcher like a Wainwright or a Kluber makes for a fine uh, late inning, late uh, draft pickup. And I've been trying to sprinkle those guys in late in my drafts all the time. Yeah, I've been trying to get rid of the old but doesn't strike a lot of guys out bias. That's that's I'm I'm so far away from Wainwright each of these last couple of seasons that, mm-hmm. that that's a blind spot for me. That's the that's the part of this I struggle with. I didn't with. have a ton of shares, but I did get I did I have a, a more than a few shares of Kluber and I think he's uh he's com- comparable. Yeah, tracking in that direction. Thanks a lot. I, and I ended up with some shares of Verlander even too. Verlander yeah, I, I Verlander, Verlander and Scherzer are just they're on I, but I wasn't afraid of Darvish either. I think there were people that didn't want Darvish, so I I I think the question is really more about injury risk, right? Mm-hmm. And and Scherzer has shown that uh, Verlander may be in his honeymoon phase, but uh, and you've been mostly healthy this year. I think he's been on the IL once, but yeah, pretty healthy do, group of older pitchers. Do want to mix your risk around? If you, you, you like, you wouldn't go all old. That'd be weird. That then you'd would probably be very weird. have some moment where you just have five starting pitchers on the IL. You know, I do wonder if the. The time that an old pitcher loses to injury offsets any difference between how that pitcher is treated versus how the young pitcher is managed with kid gloves. Like you're going to lose those innings, either old guys because they got hurt or young guys because the teams are trying to keep them from getting hurt and they still get hurt anyway. I don't know. I mean, the reason we pick uh, pitchers in the first five rounds is because they're in that sweet spot where we think we can get 180 innings out of them. They'll be good and they won't get injured. (laughs) Not old and and not getting kid gloves treatment. Yeah, and then everywhere on the other sides is you you pick those guys later. <laughs> B27, that's uh, that's the answer if you're a pitcher. Uh, no, but really, just do do what you can to trust the numbers behind these players because they, they're legitimately good, even if they're not lighting up the radar gun quite the same way that they used to. Thanks for that question, Just make Isaac. age like one, a thing you look at a little bit later in the process, you know? Hide, hide that column maybe if you have to. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, OJ writes in with a question that might seem odd at first blush. Is it actually a good thing to throw 24 strikes in a row? Sure, you'll avoid walks and throw fewer pitchers, but don't you want batters chasing non-strikes if you're going to succeed long-term? Can any pitcher maintain sufficiently elite stuff to always be hitting in the zone? Hope you're avoiding pickleball injuries uh, from OJ. I think this is inspired by George Kirby's outing on Wednesday, right? George Kirby was just filling the zone with strikes, and that's kind of what George Kirby does. But is there something mm-hmm. to this? Is there a point where you can actually be in the zone too much, even if your stuff is pretty good? Yeah. It's a philosophical question. I mean, uh, the answer is, yes, it's a bad thing if you have worse stuff than Kirby. <laughs> uh, Tyler Glass now, you know, the big thing that happened with the Rays is he got one target and it was high in the zone and he's throwing everything at that target. And so theoretically, everything he's trying to throw is in the zone. But he also has some of the best stuff in the in the big leagues. Like you could maybe, I think Spencer Strider would be the guy to to kind of, watch like could spencer strider just get one target for down the middle and and how would he do uh hunter green is the answer uh to what you're saying though hunter green has uh i think top five fastball stuff at least among starters he's uh got an excellent fastball and early on this season he was throwing a dead red down the middle and it wasn't working so there's that interplay of stuff in, in command where Yes, in the zone, uh, but on the corners, like Kirby, good. 
in the zone, high stuff in the middle will hurt you eventually. As good as uh, his fastball was, Hunter Green's, he was giving up homers. Um, and then there's also the third caveat. I'm the king of waffles, therefore I will waffle. The third caveat is how many pitches do you have? If you are filling up the zone with three different pitch types, that's a lot different than Hunter Green throwing too many fastballs down the middle. So I think theoretically you can live with a high zone rate if you had three pitches and you had great command and you were throwing it to different parts of the zone. Yeah, because I mean, I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at a zone contact percentage leaderboard and if you go down to 80 innings pitched, just to kind of keep the relievers out of it, 128 pitchers qualify. George Kirby tied for 35th. That'd be tied for 35th. Highest or lowest? 35th lowest. Okay. So 25th percentile-ish in a good way. And generally... Like 75th percentile. Yeah, but, yeah, 75th uh, percentile. Yeah, that's the correct way to use is, percentile. I would, say, I would say stuff is, you know, for for a starting pitcher is about average. So he's overplaying his stuff by having great command there. It, it is funny. It's a funny list because they're it's mostly but do good it by pitchers. zone percentage. Just zone percentage? Who's in the zone the yeah. most? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, old guy, old guy, struggling pitcher, then Kirby. Who do you think the two old guys are? It's like Marco Gonzalez? Is that a struggling pitcher? Mm, he's not the struggling pitcher. Oh. Hmm. Is it Wainwright? <laughs> it's not. It's Rich Hill at number oh, one. You Darvish wow. at number two. Then Dylan Bundy. Uh, and then George Kirby. See, you're, you're, see, you Darvish is interesting because he does not have good command, but he has a lot of pitch types. So he's throwing all of his pitch types towards his own. Right. And if you have five, six, seven, eight, I don't know how many pitches you Darvish actually has at yeah. this point, a, a, a lot. Hitters have to successful. guess. Stuff's going to move late. You're, you're going to avoid the barrel. Rich Hill is the Tyler Glass now. I know it's, it's weird to say that because Rich Hill throws like 88. But Rich Hill is the Tyler Glass now thing where it's like, I have a high stuff thing. I'm just going to throw in the zone. I don't have any command. Yeah. It, see, there's there's some interesting names on this list because it goes Hill, Darvish, Bundy, Kirby, Framber Valdez, right? Tons of ground balls. It's fine. He needs to be in the zone. Chris Bassett, Brady Singer, Justin most Steele. Most guys have good command, I think. Sean Manaya. Yeah, I think this is mostly a good command list. Julio Urias, uh, yeah. Logan Gilbert, yeah. Shohei Otani, Kyle Wright, yeah. Joe Ryan, Noah Syndergaard. Oh, Otani is bad command. And Darvish is bad commandish too. But I think Otani is on the glass now one. Mostly just throw it towards zone. You got, you know, high 90s stuff, splitter that comes off of it. He throws his high he throws more high sliders than anyone, so Otani. The other end of the leaderboard's kind of fun. If you flip it upside down, who's in the zone the least? Jose Quintana is in the strike zone the least. Ooh. And I'm surprised that that works. That's not bad command. That's just that's like I don't trust my stuff. That's, I don't want to get hit. <laughs> so um I'm just gonna dance around the zone. Corbin Burns is number two. I think that's bad command. Zach Davies eh, doesn't trust the stuff. Martin Perez. Yeah. There's some there's some soft tosses who don't trust their stuff. Dylan Cease. That's bad command. So so Burns and, and Dylan Cease are the good pitchers that are not in the zone as often uh-huh. as everybody else. This other guy, David Peterson, Ian Anderson, Dane Dunning, Chris Flexen, Paul Blackburn. It's a lot of guys that oh, you don't really want. Soft tosses don't trust their stuff. Stuff uh you know, command is confidence on some level. That's what a lot of pitchers will say. Hmm. Um Season, uh, uh, there's a little bit of risk there with Season Burns where it's like, what if hitters decided to take a really patient approach with those guys? I think the counter adjustment, if you if you had the, the ability to do it, if you're Corbin Burns, you'd throw more first pitch strikes. You'd go throw in first pitch cutters. Yeah, and Cease throws so many sliders now, you'd be throwing, you'd throw sliders in the, in the zone, I guess. So that'd probably be their adjustment. But uh, thanks a lot for the question, OJ. Uh, one last email that came in was actually a follow-up response. We had a, a league that was talking about locking teams out of making moves at the end of the season, the non-contending, the non-playoff oh, yeah. teams. So we have another listener who's in a, a keeper league. It's a head-to-head league. And what they decided to do was add a loser's bracket. So that way, mm. everybody who wasn't in the playoffs could be in the loser's bracket, and they would be able to win back half of their entry fee. And that kept the league 
a lot more active throughout the entire second half. As a head-to-head yeah. league, it kept teams trying in July and August when they might even drop off in a regular season matchup. So that seems like a pretty pretty good workaround. I really like that. The other one that, I, uh, that I've that i liked, um, uh, my friend had a, a basketball league that we did where uh, it's a graded pay-in, pay-out scale. Uh, so first place wins a bunch, second place wins last, third place wins last, but also third to last pays more and second to last pays more and last pays the most. Um, and so you're fighting to stay out of the bottom because you don't want to pay more. Yeah, no, I, I do. I like that. I've, I've got a league that I'm in that plays that way too, where you pay a, a penalty for being extra bad. As long as you know people are, are good for the for the money, that's that's a great way to set up a league. Also, you could just you could kind of do the math where it ends up being the same. Where it's like, uh, okay, if I'm if I'm fifth, uh, I don't pay an entry fee. You know, you could have a league where fifth place gets your money back. Yeah, you could just collect all the money up front and then pay back everyone, including the team that took well, not the team that took last, but you know, just everyone gets paid back a little, and then the, yeah. Yeah, you can still take the money up front and just and do it that way. In our league, we did the more dangerous thing where we settled up at the end of the year. That's dangerous because people can can leave. It, it's just extra uh, work for the commissioner to track people down. I, I don't think for the overwhelming majority of people that play in a league together that know each other, I don't think it's that you have legitimate flight risks in your league. It's just more like a hassle to pester that one or two. Yeah, because the season's bottom. over, they're not thinking about it anymore. Yeah, they're just busy. Like, yeah, leave, leave me alone. But the, the flip side of it was that you can actually make it sort of a payment from person to person. So last basically sends a check to first. Make the winner go collect the money from dead last. <laughs> no, that's awful. Oh, I, I, thank thank that, your commissioner. Please. Consider tipping your commissioner yeah. if you get a long-term commissioner. Tip your commissioner. <laughs> just, you might as well. Send, send the commissioner coffee or beer or whatever it is they like because uh, it's that's a right. thankless job. Uh, thanks for that email, Dan. Lots of great questions today. Feel free to keep sending those in. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com is the email address. So you can tweet at us. Eno's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. You can also leave questions under this video on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Like this video if you're watching us there. Uh, as always, we appreciate any and all great reviews that you'd leave us for this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other player or platform that allows you to rate and review the show. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>